Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack, pre-A, VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Anne. I am the head of platform at Angular Ventures, and this is our third Angular Insights event. We are very lucky today to have Vivek from Mayfield talking about enterprise product strategy. And thanks. And thank you, Vivek, for joining us. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you with us. Vivek is a venture investor at Mayfield, one of the most storied firms in California. He's been an, an investor for several years now, an investor in Dev2, Alchemy, and GoLinks. He's also worked closely on a lot of names that are probably familiar to you, Rancher, Volterra, Turbo, HashiCorp, which is you know, a transformational company. Even more interestingly, I think, uh, prior to working at Mayfield, Vivek was a hardcore product guy at a few companies you might have heard of, like Docker, VMware, and Amazon Web Services. So he brings an engineer and a product, an, an engineering and a product mindset to the venture world with a deep experience base in building, deploying, and selling hardcore enterprise IT infrastructure products. Awesome. Thank you, Gil and Anne, for that fantastic introduction. And thank you on behalf of the folks at Angular Ventures for having me here. So I'm uh, Vivek Sarasot. I'm a venture investor at Mayfield Fund and former product leader at Docker VMware AWS. So I'm here to talk to you about five things I've learned about enterprise product strategy. So we'll go over a couple of uh, interesting uh, facts and battle scars I've learned along the way in, in my journey in product at Docker, VMware, AWS, and then and then working with companies at Mayfield. So uh, and then we'll have a little discussion in Q and A afterwards. So uh, let's get right to it. So uh, Gil talked a little bit about my background, so I won't go into too much detail. But I started my career first in engineering, uh, working in both big companies and startups before making the transition into the wonderful world of product. First at AWS uh, up in Seattle, working in uh, Elastic Block Store snapshots. I then moved back to the Bay Area, first at VMware, working on hyperconverged storage at vSAN. And then this is right about the world of containers started to become big. Seeing that, I formed the Cloud Native Storage Applications product group at VMware, learning how to do persistent storage in containers and you know, building open source integrations within that area. I then met the folks over at Docker and moved over to Docker at that time and launched and ran Docker's primary enterprise product and took that to uh, eight figures revenue and a couple hundred enterprise customers. So how you take that sort of bottoms up developer adoption within the community and bring that into real enterprise IT revenue and customers helped steer that ship for about three years. And then from there, I met the folks at Mayfield and joined about two years ago, as of last week, actually. And at Mayfield, I lead next generation infrastructure and product development tooling investments. Some of my investments here include companies like dev.to, where I'm on the board, along with Alchemy, GoLinks, and a stealth company in the monitoring space. And I also work very closely with some of our portfolio companies in areas like product strategy, go-to-market, and hiring companies like Rancher, HashiCorp, Volterra, Crunchbase, and ShiftLeft. So that's a little bit about me. And if you're unfamiliar with Mayfield, we're one of the oldest venture capital firms within Silicon Valley, uh, 51 years as of this year. Over that time, we've made 500 investments and we've done relatively well, 117 IPOs, Lyft being the most recent, and 200 other successful M&A exits. We invest across enterprise, consumer, and digital health. And we're a relatively small team of about nine investors, uh, 
all of us are, you know, we're a team with entrepreneurial DNA. We're all other former operators and founders who know a little bit something about the areas that we invest in. And we take what we call a, a people-first approach to investing. And what that means is we, we don't make very many investments per year, but we work very closely with the founders that we invest in, helping in every area of company building, whether it's product strategy, go-to-market, hiring ops. We're there to help our founders through every step of that company building process. And that's both in the investment team as well as in the portfolio services team, which helps with business development, talent, as well as marketing. So that's a little bit about us. Let's talk a little bit about the five things that I've learned in enterprise product strategy. The first one that I'm going to talk about today is prioritization, and this is about the power of focus. So anybody who's been in product knows that prioritization is really one of the key things that you do within product. Now, you talk to most startup founders, you talk to most people in product, and they want to tell you about all the things that they want to build, all the, the vision of the company, the act one, the act two, the act three, all the features that they want to build. I'm here to tell you, though, that most startups die of indigestion, not starvation. They die because they try to do too many things. As a startup, you only have so many bullets to fire. You only have so many things that you're able to do. You have a limited team. And so you have to be very careful and selective about what you're able to do. Strategy is what you choose not to do. It's about the things that you focus on building. You know, one of the common failure modes that I see in startups, for example, is, and in particularly in product, is focusing only on the technical implications of what you choose to make in a decision. A really good example is if you look at a seed or an early stage startup, choosing to build both a SaaS and an on-prem version of a product, because saying as an example that the technical build of the SaaS and on-prem product are exactly the same, so I can go ahead and build both, but failing to consider that the go-to-market aspects and the customer success aspects of building a SaaS and on-prem product are very different. For example, a SaaS product might be selling to mid-market, and so it's an inside sales versus a on-prem product requires going and building a very direct enterprise sales build. And the customer success for both of those is completely different. And building out the versioning, et cetera, is extremely different. So thinking through those aspects are extremely, extremely important. So how do you actually think about prioritization and focus as a product leader? So the way I think about it is really building what is important. It starts with taking what is called a critical path value proposition. What exactly does that mean? Critical path to me means taking a painkiller value proposition for the user that is so important that the buyer cannot afford to pay for it. And that's going to be relevant to your particular industry that you're in. Once you start with that critical path value proposition, you take the table stakes enterprise features that you need on top of that value prop. This can be things like single sign-on, LDAP, access control, SAML, et cetera. Then you take access control, RBAC. Then you take maybe high availability, audit and compliance. Then you layer on top of that the features that really bring real enterprise value on top of those table stakes. So this could be features like collaboration features that bring different teams together, peace of mind features like security features, disaster recovery, et cetera, or performance enhancing features on top of your specific industry. But really, this prioritization is extremely important. You know, a good example of a company that's done this exceedingly well, look at a company like Slack. Even with a thousand engineers, even as an IPO level company, it is still building effectively a messaging platform. Even with all the features that's been built, it's a messaging platform. And that's an example of the power of focus. Moving on, probably the equally important piece within product is empathy. So most folks know this, that what is empathy? It's a pretty popular topic within product these days. It is the ability to put yourself in somebody's shoes who's very different from you and to literally feel what they're feeling, to you know, feel their pain points, feel their hopes and dreams and desires. 
And usually people associate this with their users and buyers, but as a product person, you need to associate this with your team members as well, whether it's your engineering team, your product development team, as well as your sales and marketing team. But in this particular instance, I'm thinking about how you can use empathy to design for your audience and your audience specifically. So what is this a picture of? On the left side here, you see a cockpit of a space shuttle, pretty relevant with the, with the uh, SpaceX news pretty recently. On the right, you see the cockpit or really the handlebars of a bicycle. So the cockpit of a space shuttle, what is it? It has lots of buttons. It's highly customizable. There's a lot you can do with a space shuttle and it can take you to literally a lot of places. But there's implications to building a space shuttle. It's high maintenance. There's a lot you need. There's a lot of tool sets that you need in order to maintain that space shuttle. It also requires a very custom skill set in order to drive that space shuttle. And as a result of that, it has a very high price tag associated with buying and using and maintaining that space shuttle. Therefore, there's a very focused user and buyer base that you need in order to use and maintain that space shuttle. Then we go over to the bike. It has a very intentional design. It's highly accessible. So, you know, there's not many knobs. There's not many buttons on that bike. As a result of that, it's low maintenance. It's easy to fix. It can't take you as many places. That's a given, obviously. But as a result, it has a lower price tag. I say lower because some bikes are actually pretty expensive. And it has a larger user and buyer base. This does not mean that you should be always building a bike. There are cases where you want to be building a space shuttle. There are cases where you want to be building a bike. Why do I bring up this example? I was talking with a product leader at a a well-known startup who was giving me the example of how they were trying to convince their product development leaders at their, or their, their engineering leaders at their startup why they shouldn't keep building too many features within their product. The engineering team wanted to, in order to make their customer more successful, wanted to build feature after feature after feature in the product for their customer, thinking that's what would make their customer successful. But the product leader recognized that for their specific customer, who is IT admins, building more features into the, into the UX, both CLI and front end, wouldn't necessarily make their customer more successful. It would only confuse them and it would only add on to their cognitive burden. So that was an example of that product leader having empathy for their specific audience in this case, the IT admin, you have to understand in that case that they're building a bike or, you know, or a a car or or whatever, choose your, choose your metaphor of choice for their specific user. So in your case, as a product leader, decide, are you building space shuttles? Are you building a, you know, a Ford Mustang? Are you building a bike for your audience and have that empathy for them? The next piece that I find important for enterprise product strategy is paradoxically not really about product at all. It's about go-to-market. There is a, a belief in the valley that if you build a kick-ass product, if you build something so amazing, people will just stream to it and just start using it just because it's that awesome. Effectively, if you build it, they will come. I'm here to tell you that that's not really true. If you build it, they won't come. There is a lot more that goes into building a product than just product itself. There is go-to-market. And so one of the best advices I got from one of my mentors and bosses within product was if you really want to level up in product, you have to go beyond product. You have to understand the value of marketing and sales. And this is perhaps one of the first things that you can do. If you're talking immediately in product, think about this. What is the first value is in marketing? And so beyond just understanding your user and buyer, which is part of the empathy, understand the value of value communication. And this is where marketing comes in. 
what does that user and buyer care about? And how do you explain the value proposition of what you're doing to that user and buyer? What is the so what? How are you going to explain that value proposition effectively? This is why I believe that most startups, particularly in the bottoms up world, do not hire for product marketing early enough within their life cycle. And as a product leader, you can do a lot by actually spending more time with your marketing team and understanding how to explain and get that value proposition across effectively. The second piece is really around sales and empathizing with the front lines. It's amazing to me how many product leaders and product managers and founders don't actually spend enough time with their sales team or don't spend time in sales at all and understand whether their product is actually resonating with the sales team and with the pitches and not just with customers who are actually using the product. So empathizing with the front lines is deeply important. But that's just actually empathizing internally with the team and actually building those skill sets. There's a piece to be said as a product leader about how you can integrate product with GTM. So at Mayfield, we had a fireside chat with David McJanet, who is the CEO of HashiCorp, one of our highest performing portfolio companies right now. And one of the tips that he gave is one of the biggest things that a founder or CEO or product leader within a startup and organization today can do to make their company successful is to deeply consider go-to-market as a part of your product building process. Now, HashiCorp does this in the world of bottoms up. HashiCorp creates, for those who don't know, they create open source infrastructure software. For example, Vault, which builds secrets management software, or Terraform, which helps you configure and manage infrastructure software. So they build this open source community software and then monetize via commercial versions of this. So that's a, that's a way that that's done using bottoms up integration of product with go-to-market. And that's commonly known as product like go-to-market today. And we'll talk a bit more about how that can be done. I believe that can also be done top-down. You can also integrate product with go-to-market in a top-down motion, and that's what I call piercing the noise, done by building a differentiated value proposition. So we'll talk about more in depth. How can you actually integrate product and go-to-market in both bottoms-up and top-down motions? So let's start with bottoms-up. I've built bottoms-up products before. I've worked with companies at Mayfield that have built bottoms-up products. There is a method to this badness. There's sort of a dark art behind it, and I call it the hook and the upsell. So this is a two-part process. What is the hook? The hook is focusing on growing adoption first, and it's building your product in a way that does three things. It solves a simple burning pain point with a lightweight method of insertion for a large surface area of users. Let's break that down for a second. Solving a simple burning pain point. So what this is not is solving a complex technical problem. This is a, a failure mode that a lot of folks make that because they're solving something complex and technical, people will automatically use it. It's actually far more important to solve a clearly articulated pain point that people have and a painkiller that people have right now than it is to solve something that's complex and technical, number one. Number two, a lightweight method of insertion. So this means that it has to be either easy to download or easy to access, whether it's a freemium SaaS service or a downloadable client. Usually this also means that it's free. I mean, in some cases it can be a low price point depending on the type of user, but usually it means it's free. And then very importantly, a large surface area of users. Now, this is important because you need to build a community and one that you can easily cause virality and cause sharing among the users. Sometimes a common failure mode among bottoms up companies is that they try to build among a small surface area of users in the hook. 
Often I see this among security companies. They try to do bottoms up in the hook among, say, for example, SecOps engineers. That tends to be a very small community. It's often hard to build a hook there. If you look at successful bottoms up security companies that have been successful, like SNCC, for example, the hook is actually among larger developers and the upsell is actually among security teams. And the upsell can be in the smaller community, but not the hook. Example of a very successful hook, let's look at my former company, Docker. People think of Docker, they associate microservices, 12-factor apps, and all of that. That wasn't the original hook in Docker. The original hook was actually application dependency component versioning. It's, I have Python 2.0.0, and then I want to go to 2.0.1 in my application without breaking components and dependencies. And I want to do that simply and easily. And this is a big problem with engineers, but it's a simple one to explain. And it was a lightweight method of insertion. It was a daemon, a local daemon that you installed on your desktop or your laptop with an easy-to-use CLI, and it was a large surface area of users. It was all developers. It's a fantastic hook. Now let's talk about the upsell. You've built this awesome community base. It's time to monetize. First thing you do, try not to monetize on your individual base. Reason being that for the most case, your base, your base usually doesn't have a strong budget. And if you monetize on your individual base, they're likely to churn out. You're likely to have high customer acquisition costs. You monetize by influencing the higher level buyer to come to you by understanding their chief concerns and upselling a paid version of the free product. Stepping through those three things. You influence the higher level buyer to come to you. We talked about why you don't really monetize on the individual user. How do you influence this high level, higher level buyer? You go up the rung to them. Importantly, you don't expect the user to sell on your behalf, common failure mode. In the example of developers, developers are extremely passionate about the technologies that they use, but they typically don't try to sell your product for you. That's not commonly done. So you either have to market directly to that buyer, again, the importance of understanding GTM, or you influence them through product means. Going back to the example of Slack, the most common reason that people buy Slack is paid search retention. So that's a reason that people come inbound to Slack to go pay for the product. So you have to find a reason to influence that buyer to come to you. How do you find that? You understand what their chief concerns actually are. So again, this is about having empathy for what that buyer is. The chief concern of either a manager or a VP level buyer is usually very different from what that user is. It might be something at the team level about team efficiency or at the buyer level about CapEx, OpEx reduction or overall organization centralized service. Understanding what higher level enterprise buyers care about is extremely important. And then the final piece is really upselling a paid version of the free product. A common failure mode people make in bottoms up is trying to do a bait and switch. They do an upsell of a completely different product from what the free version is. The problem with this is twofold. One is from a, a friction standpoint, if they have to do a full reinstall of the product, then there's too much friction in the sale. The second piece is buyer re-education. If you have to completely re-educate the buyer on what the product is, you're also dead in the water in providing friction in the sale. So all of these things are necessary in order to make the sale inbound and ideally inside sale and with as little friction as possible. So that's a, that's a lightning fast talk in terms of what the bottoms up hook and upsell can do for you. Let's talk quickly about how you can integrate product and GTM with top-down. And this is what I call piercing the noise. So top-down sales, it's really about understanding and putting yourself in the shoes of a C-level or exec-level buyer. 
C-level execs have a ton of priorities on their mind and vendor selection is usually not one of their top priorities. So what is this graphic on the right? If, if you are a C-level buyer at all thinking about vendor selection at any point, you usually have a ton of companies who are saying, pick me, pick me, who are trying to get your attention at any given time. How do you get yourself on the exec radar? The first thing that you really need to do is you need to be building what I call a top two painkiller. As a startup, you might think that what you're building is important and it likely is, but if what you're building is not a top two painkiller, it's not a top two priority for that exec, you might as well not even be in the running. A very good example of this is one of our portfolio companies called security.ai. They're building tools right now that are related to GDPR, data compliance, and data breaches. If you're at all involved with, with CISOs and, and the security world, you know that data breaches are a big deal right now. That is an example of a top two painkiller. That's what it takes to sort of get within this, the CISO radar. One of the second pieces is really about integrating with the enterprise ecosystem. If you've ever looked at an enterprise architecture, the, the, you know, the fancy slides that go into any enterprise sales deck, you'll notice that with any product, there's always this series of tools and third-party products and open source pieces that that product integrates with. So for example, if you're in the open source world, integrations with Kubernetes, integrations with the container side, integrations with AWS, GCP, Azure, integrations with monitoring tools and logging tools like Splunk, Datadog, et cetera. Why do people do this? Because one of the biggest priorities that enterprises care about is, do you integrate with my existing tool set? And do you integrate with my existing talent skill set? If you don't, I really don't want to work with you because you're making my job infinitely harder. So just to get over the hump of, of getting into the exec priority, you need to either be a top two painkiller and you need to integrate with the enterprise ecosystem. These are product pieces. You have the ability to do this as a product leader. So to me, this is a product problem that you can solve in terms of integrating GTM and product. Two more pieces here, taking customers on a journey. So I'll tell a story from Docker here. When we started going to enterprise customers with enterprise products, you know, we came with this vision of transform your product using microservices or transform your monoliths into microservices using containers. One of the feedbacks we would get is, hey, we're an enterprise. We're not a traditional enterprise. We're not ready for microservices. We're just not there yet. Maybe your product isn't for us. And our sort of take back was, look, if you just take the first step and containerize your application, you can lift and shift your app to the cloud and get, say, 30% on your CapEx bill. This is the benefit you can get by taking the first step, and we will take you on this journey. So what you can do with your customer is, in your product, is there a minimum benefit that you can show by taking that customer on the first step versus the vision that you want to take them? Or is it an all or nothing difference? And then I believe this is part sales, but it is actually part product. Or with your product, is it engineered and built in such a way that your customer has to go from zero to 100? Can they get a benefit from, from going to, to zero to 25, zero to one, zero to 10%? If you can get them to zero to 10% in your product and get a huge benefit, then you can take them on that journey. That will make a top-down business much more successful. So something to think through. Can you take your customers on a journey? And then finally, seeing is believing. Top-down sales, yes, they are very heavily relationship-driven, but there is a very significant power to guided demos and trials. So if you can provide your sales team with the ability to show time to value very quickly using guided demos or showing hosted trials that you can give to your sales team, you know, back in the old days, you'd hand them you know, guidebooks and whatnot. If you can actually give hosted trials and guided demos to your team, that that can be used. Trust me, your sales team will love you. So all of these are product pieces that you can give your team that will help you differentiate your solution as a top-down piece. So that was a very, very lightning fast tour, given the time requirements we have 
on five things that I've learned in enterprise product strategy. So just to quickly recap, we talked about prioritization, the power of focus. If anything you remember from that, it's that startups dive into gestion, not starvation. So focus on what can make your company successful on building that critical path solution. And then the enterprise table sticks pieces you need off of that. The second piece is empathy. Design for your audience. Remember space shuttles and bicycles. Which one are you building? Which one is appropriate for your audience? The third piece is GTM. If you build it, they won't come. Understand the importance of marketing and sales and understand how you can integrate product and GTM. And to those specific points, if you're going bottoms up, understand, start with the hook, build a solution that allows you to hit a simple burning pain point with a lightweight method of insertion for a large surface area of users, and then upsell to a buyer and understand what that buyer's concerns are with a solution that's based off of your free solution, a paid solution based off your free solution. And if you are going top down, figure out how you can pierce the noise, figure out how you're building that top two painkiller, and then provide ways that you can either integrate with the enterprise ecosystem and take your customer on a journey. So thank you. That's what I have today. You know, I can talk about product and go to market all day and, and about investing in early stage enterprise startups. You can find more on my tweets at the vstarswith. I also blog on these topics at vstarswith.com or feel free to email me. At this point, I'm happy to take some questions. Thank you so much, Vivek. Something that, that I was thinking about as you were talking, and, and I know we've chatted about this before in other contexts, is, is this the shift that seems to be going on of everyone in the B2B world is trying to make their product self-service. And there's this sort of inversion between we used to sell first and then try to grow, and now we're trying to emulate the consumer guys and grow first and then try to sell. Martin Casado at A16Z has talked about this. What is your take on that? Is that a secular shift? Is that, are we all going to be self-service going forward? Is the, are the days of the briefcase carrying enterprise sales guys, is that over? Or is it just coronavirus? How are you seeing that play out? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I, I think during the time of coronavirus right now, certainly there is a big shift away from pure top-down sales. And that's just the practicality. Even within our portfolio, a lot of our top-down companies are moving to more self-serve or at least inside sales model. And actually, actually that's a very important differ, like differentiation and nuance to make. There is pure self-serve inside sales and then top-down models. And so not everyone is going pure self-serve. There's a lot of that are going sort of inside sales over Zoom. And you can do sort of five-figure sales inside sales over Zoom. That sort of human connection does, does matter, I think. That's said, we are seeing a lot of our companies move towards more self-serve sales during this time period. It's hard to do that kind of steak dinner sale in this, in this time period right now. I do fundamentally believe that a lot of companies will move into more of this product-led, bottoms-up, self-serve motion as a result of, of coronavirus. That said, however, I don't think that every company is necessarily suited for a bottoms-up motion. If you saw from sort of the, the piece that I wrote there in the bottoms up slide, there is a set of qualities that make bottoms up attractive. You know, it requires a large surface area of users to build upon. It requires this very clearly articulated pain point, a very simple pain point that you can solve for and this sort of lightweight method of insertion. That's applicable to a set of verticals and a set of use cases and a set of buyers. I believe that top-down works in a set of other use cases where you have strong top-down buyers, where the vision sale matters, and where you have complex technical solutions. And so I don't think that it's going to fully replace, you know, bottoms-up is not going to fully replace top-down. There is, good, there is a secular shift, absolutely, but it's not a full replacement. So we'll see a movement over, there will still continue to be strong top-down use cases, 
every so often I see bottoms up companies and say, look, this is not a good use case for bottoms up. And I think that's, we'll just have to recognize that both have a, have a role to play. And specifically in the, in sort of bottoms up land, I mean, we see so many developer tools, so many companies that are either an open source project or some kind of freemium thing or some developer framework. And for every one of those, there seem to be five others that do roughly the same thing. Do you feel like there's developer fatigue, that there's just so much on offer in terms of the way that we used to think that CTOs are overwhelmed with offerings? Now developers themselves are overwhelmed with offerings. Have you experienced that? Did you experience that at Docker? You know, are there strategies for overcoming that? How would you advise startups to try to cut through that noise when they are trying to go bottoms up into these developers that are... That's an interesting question. You know, I wrote about this back in January that if you looked at the CNCF landscape, um, and I know the CNCF folks really well, a year or two ago, there was like a couple hundred companies and tools within the CNCF landscape. There's now something like 1,300 companies and tools within the CNCF landscape. And those are all primarily open source and and developer-focused tools. And so there, there certainly is some amount of fatigue within the community around, okay, how do we sort of navigate what's noise and and what's actually useful. I think one sort of difference is that the popular things seem to float to the top very quickly and resonate very quickly within the developer community. And so there is sort of like the the strong survive like within within the open source and bottoms up world. And so the advice that I give if you're building the company is that you have to iterate very, very quickly when you're building a bottoms up tool. Like if it's not resonating, you need to sort of quickly iterate and move. And and this is where building a lightweight tool matters. In the traditional top-down enterprise mentality, you work very closely with a couple of key design partners, right? Five to 10 design partners, build and build and build and iterate. And then once it gets out there, then usually you know you have something and then you sort of build that out to the world. That's not really true in bottoms up. You don't work with five to 10 design partners and then throw something out there. You have to iterate really quickly. And then once something sticks and goes viral, you go with it. And this is actually a carryover in many ways from the consumer world. You know, people talk about consumerization of enterprise. Consumer folks understood it way better than we ever did. I think you see that with the open source landscape as well. People iterate very quickly until something works. If you're on the developer side, you know, on the other side as a consumer, I don't know if there's a good answer to that right now. I'm still looking at that as an investor. How do you navigate the fatigue of this? I'm looking for tools that help you prioritize and, and sort of manage your time effectively as a developer. And, and that's something that I'm actually actually looking at investing in. Yeah. One last question for you as a product guy. Something I think is on the mind of a lot of early stage founders is customer development, giving customers what they want versus telling customers what I think they should want because I'm an innovator and I'm trying to push the envelope forward. It does relate to the top down bottoms up question, but, but how do you think about helping founders navigate those two things? And can you think through examples of founders struggling with those questions of, do I go for what people want or do I try to find a customer that will be a good use case example of what could be done if only people could understand what I'm doing? Yeah, there, I think there's a big This is a good question. There's a big difference between people telling you what they want and figuring out what people need. And so understanding pain points for what it's worth. I don't, I am not a believer in telling that you should tell people what they want. I do think founders should be opinionated. However, I think that understanding people's pain points is extremely important. That said, there's a nuance there in in that you should not, you should not just tip what people say as gospel and say, Hey, people say what they want. If they say they want a faster horse, give them a faster horse. 
understand the pain point behind what they're saying, what they want, and then give them a solution that serves that pain point. And so that's kind of the difference is sort of interpreting the need behind a statement and then delivering an innovative product based on that need. And sort of the innovation that a founder delivers can be different from what a customer states. And that's, I think, the key difference that's there. And that's often the nuance that's lost. But the, the danger that can happen with a founder is telling people what they want often leads to delivering something that's actually different from what they need. And, and so the key is to, to figure out what that pain point is, which is a direct result of listening to the customer and getting the need, and then delivering an innovative solution that is often different from what the customer says that they want. I don't know if that sort of explains the nuance in my head, but I'm very much in favor of listening to the customer, getting the need correctly, and then figuring out a completely different innovation that's independent from the solution itself. Wonderful. Thank you. Hey, Barry, thank you so much. I really enjoyed listening to you. Thank you so much for this. My question is, a lot of what you explained here in terms of building products and going market are just as relevant for large established enterprise companies like AWS or, for example, VMware as they might be for a small mid-sized startup. And so uh, that said, with that background, is there something you would do differently if you're trying to design a product in a large portfolio company like AWS compared to what you've already explained for a small company? That's a good question. So there's a couple of things. I think going back to the piece about focus and, and prioritization, what you look for as a big company is often different in prioritization than what you look for in a startup. Big companies rarely die of indigestion. That's one big difference, for example. The key concepts of prioritization, empathy, and go-to-market are similar, but the execution is vastly different in a big company, and the priorities that you have are different. So when you're thinking of priorities in a big company, you have to think a lot more about how it fits in with the rest of the portfolio and how it fits in with the go-to-market that you've already built. As a startup, you don't necessarily have those set of concerns. And I think you mentioned AWS. AWS, I know, operates a little differently in many ways because the teams often work independently. So there is a nuance there, granted. But in general, in a big company, you have to think far more about how you sort of fit into the machinery around you. And that's sort of the nuance that you have to think of. Whereas in a startup, you're thinking much more about survival and your sort of independent execution. I think that's the way that I would sort of think about that. But in terms of how you think about empathy and in many ways, the go-to-market execution is even more critical. Those remain vastly the same. I'd also argue that bottoms-up execution is just so much harder in a big company than it is in a startup. And this is why you just don't see bottoms-up execution as much in big companies as you do in startups. There's a reason that it's just easier to, to do a top-down or, or an inside sale in a big company. So, so that's another nuance to think through. How can you leverage the resources that you have in place in a big company in order to be successful? I would take advantage of that if you have it in place. Wonderful. All right. We'll next be joined by Era. Era, if you would mind just quickly introducing yourself. Hi, it's uh, Era Laksonen calling from Helsinki, Finland. I'm with a company called Valahai. We're an MLOps platform. My question is, we're building a, a developer tooling product and, and given sort of the inside sales strategy, do you have any tips or strategies to help decide on channels for lead generation or demo generation for the team, especially in the developer tooling world? In terms of sort of developing channels and audiences, I think the first thing that, you know, going back to the concept of, of like hook and upsell, the main things that we found successful for portfolio companies to start is making use of like meeting developers where they are. 
So as a start, it's really about using existing developer channels, like whether it's Hacker News, whether it's dev.to, you know, when my portfolio company is 6 million users and growing strong, right at our slash programming, really building very authentic content. So this is not sales content, right? This is content from your engineering or DevRel team that talks about sort of use cases, that talks about how you sort of build the content you're building without sort of directly selling the product. Building sort of authentic, genuine generation of pieces from there and sort of building that community awareness first. That has generated far more efficient inbound leads than sort of traditional marketing channels have within our sort of developer tooling companies. That's what I really recommend as as a starting point. Start by meeting developers where they are within those channels and use that to sort of build the inbound leads and and, and the inbound utility. That's the first point. Thank you. And also thanks for the presentation. It was very insightful. You're welcome. Awesome. Next, we're going to be joined by Gary. Thank you very much. It's Gary Abella here from Stream AI based in Berlin. We're developing a AI anomaly detection solution for engineers within manufacturing. So our end users, bottom up, our engineers. My question, and firstly, thank you again for an awesome presentation. Two real questions. First, around actually making a product hire. We're about to hire our first CPO. And I'm trying to understand the competencies of the individual from an acumen around business strategy and understanding sales versus the technical capability and alignment that they have for a data science-driven product. So does my CPO need to be a data scientist in order to do that job? Or you know, what would you suggest around the key competencies I should be looking for when interviewing CPOs? That's, that's a really good question. Hey, Gary. The first thing that I would understand is like, what is the role that you'd want your CPO to have within the company and what you'd want them to do? And this, this is an open question that to consider in any startup. So if this depends on sort of the competencies of the founder as they're building out their the first product hire within a startup. If the founders and the exec teams are product-oriented people themselves, then sort of is the your, is your CPO primarily in more of a project management role? Or if the founders are operating more in company building or in sales building, are they sort of doing more of the direct product building? Or are they actually doing more of a voice of customer? Or are they doing more of the, like the, the engineering role? Based upon sort of those competencies, that's how I would kind of answer that question. And that's how I would evaluate where you need their skill set. If they're going to be primarily building out the product management aspects of the role and building out your product team functionalities, I would say that's far more important than whether they're data science focused or not. So basically building out the rules of what product does in the organization. If they're far more focused on understanding the customer base and understanding the the specifics of the product itself and working with that engineering team, I would say that the, the data science aspects are probably much more important. Right. And so that's the way that I would kind of weigh that. And if it's somewhere in the middle, the answer is neither here or there, but it's but it's somewhere in the middle. But this is kind of why, like the first product hire is, is, is a, a delicate hire within the company. You really need to understand what the needs are within the organization in order to make that happen. Fantastic. Thanks so much. And then a very quick question around the top down versus bottom up. Is there a sequential phase of which you do that dependent on your product maturity or do you do that simultaneously as you go at a very early stage where you've just launched your first MVP? Yeah, actually, you know, my, my recommendation is I would try not to do both simultaneously. It's very, very difficult to do both bottoms up and top down at the same time. Reason being is that they have very different go-to-market and product build-outs. 
I mean, bottoms up is typically you have to build out the community product and then you go do an inside sales-based monetization later. Top down is you work with a couple of design partners and then you build a very strong direct sales build out and they usually have very different product build outs. Trying to do both at the same time usually spells, it usually doesn't bode well for the, for the startup is, is what I would say. So try not to do both at the same time is usually the advice that I give most startups. Maybe it's different depending on the company, but that's typically the advice that I give. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Awesome. Now we're going to be joined by Anthony. Hello. Hi there. Anthony here, also from Berlin, from Matterway. We are creating a task acceleration platform for operational employees. In a nutshell, we think automation is not the answer to everything. Sometimes you need employees to work more efficiently. We find that there's a lot of, let's say, there's so many levels of abstraction where you, we can communicate to our customers. And you mentioned to talk about a top two painkiller. And I think the example that you gave was if I if I remember correctly, it was related to compliance or maybe even GDPR or something like that, which I think is a very specific painkiller. And then, you know, all, all the way on the other sort of level of abstraction, I guess we can say increase efficiency, reduce costs by 5%, by 10%, which is very direct. It's very sort of, you know, impacting your bottom line, but it's very general. We struggle a lot because every company sort of has their own context and has their own priorities one is looking for a CRM, one is looking for that. At the end of the day, they're always looking for improving their bottom line in some form or another. So my question to you really is, would you say that a top two painkiller, so to say, is increase efficiency or reduce costs by 5% or is that just too high level, not specific enough? So, yeah, so I would divide it into two pieces. There's the area that, like, there's a subject matter that you focus on, right? And then there's the impact of that subject area. Yes. Right. And I think both are equally important. Right. And that, that depends on which buyer you go after. So in our case, when I was mentioning the, the piece about about Docker, which I think was a 30 to 40 percent CapEx you're referring to, the so what was 30 to 40 percent on your CapEx bill. But the, the piece before it was speaking to the VP of infra that containerizing your applications and doing digital transformation will cause that 30 to 40 percent. So that's the subject matter. That's the, the why and the product of what you do. Both, I would say, are equally important. And that's the first part is the buyer. And this is the human aspect. I mean, you can't just say, like, we say we'll save you money. There, there's a, we're all in the product. I mean, not all of us. There's a service business too. But we're, we're all in the business of doing something, whether it's a product, a service, or something. So there's always going to be that first piece of the what. And I think there's the what and then there's the why. With the previous example, the what was GDPR data compliance, but there's a why behind it as well. And so I think you, you, you need both in order to make a painkiller relevant. I think a lot of companies have the what, and then they kind of miss the why. Another reason for what the why is the so what, but yeah, sure. they sort of get my drift there. Yes. Both are equally relevant. I think more people have the what and miss the why than have the why and miss the yes. what, if, that, if, if, you, if you get to, me. To make sure I understood you correctly, are you suggesting that one should have the, the topical relevance, which is, let's say, the what, that delivers then the why, which is maybe the, the savings or the economic impact. Correct. The topical relevance gets you in the door with the right person uh, and who to speak with. And then the why is what gets you the sale. Fair. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Cool. Thanks. Great. Now we're joined by Gilead. Hi. Uh, thank you. Thanks for the great talk. One of the things that struck me was in the bottoms up, the way you define the hook and the upsell and the focus on a simple burning pain point. Now, it really was interesting, especially when you mentioned Docker as an example. I've, over my professional life, been in four different startups designing products. So it's really interesting for me to get your take. Docker seems, from usage, like a very technical product. So mm -hmm. how do you see that as a simple 
product and yeah. how do you make that deliver on your hook and upsell? Yeah, no, that's, that's a fair point. And I would say that this goes back to the point on empathy about designing for audiences, right? It's, it's all about who is it simple for? And for the particular use case of those particular developers that it was designing for, it was relatively simple for that use case. So for the specific piece about application component dependency management, it was an extremely simple solution for what it did. The example I'll give is like, I started my career in hardware engineering. Like I wasn't really a pure software guy. I learned to code on the side, took a couple of CS courses, but I, you know, I never had a CS degree. And I could actually use the Docker CLI myself. My sort of hallelujah moment was, man, if I can do this, what does that say about like what a, you know, an actual trained engineer can, can, can use this for? That, that's sort of what got me into it. And so that's sort of the piece there is, depending on, this is why designing for your audience is important. It may not, it may not have been relevant to the way like low-code platforms today are relevant to non-technical folks, but to that technical trained engineer, it was an extremely useful hook. So I think that's, and just like, you know, Salesforce to me is, I'll be honest, is extremely intimidating as a CRM platform as it is for many people, but for like a trained salesperson, it's, it's, it's very useful, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the key. These are the key points is, is as long as you design for your audience, you can do kind of amazing things. Thank you. That's a very interesting concept. Thanks. Thank you, Vivek. I've, I've got one more question I'm dying to ask you, which I, I know is relevant to a lot of our portfolio companies. Go for it, Gil. You, 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 you talked about a table stakes versus revolutionary product features, right? And for a lot of these enterprise grade products, or even, even SMB products, frankly, depending on the use case, the table stake list is long, right? And these startups are always time constrained, cash constrained, resource constrained. Is there a framework that, that you have used or have seen early stage companies use to prioritize table stakes and weigh them against revolutionary features and try to understand what we should be building? That Really, really good question. I, I think, so there's two points there. It's like, one is that the table stakes for enterprise is much longer than the table stakes for SMB. And a lot of people try to design too many enterprise features when they're really building for SMB. Like typically you don't need SOC 2 compliance or a heavy grade SAML access or things like that if you're building a SMB product. And so this is a matter, but if people come from an enterprise background, they assume that those things are necessary in order to build a successful SMB product. And so it's a matter of designing what, what is your actual MVP is, is actually the very first consideration. Are you actually building the right features that you need? So that's actually piece number one is like in this framework is what are the pieces you need for the type of customer you're actually going for? And there is a truth to the fact that if you're, if you're going straight to enterprise, you're going to need a lot more to actually be successful. And there are some interesting startups out there right now that are like allowing you to like integrate enterprise features from the get-go. There's one that I, you know, I'm forgetting the name right now that's building exactly that. That's sort of the, one of the key pieces I would think through is, is like, are you actually building what you need to be successful in SMB to begin with? as a starting point. SMB doesn't actually need a lot to get started. Enterprise does, admittedly. You know, the framework that I use for sort of real value versus table stakes, I, I mentioned that sort of performance collaboration peace of mind framework. I, I have it on my, on my blog as well. But that's more about like real value aside from table stakes. The typical sort of holy trinity of table stakes is single sign-on, access control, and audit compliance are kind of the three things that most people need to be successful at a minimum. 
in an enterprise environment. Is that's that that's the framework that I think of. And then when you get to enterprise, you start adding on some more gnarly stuff like FIPS 140 compliance, SOC 2, and you know anyone has been enterprise can can sort of probably probably feeling some heart tugging on their heartstrings right now if they're, if they're if they're listening to me. But those are the probably the three that I would think about immediately and be like, do you really need those in order to be successful with the audience that you have? In terms of frameworks, I don't know if there's a if there's a really specific one that I know of, but like that's that's where I'd get as my starting point. But what I would really, really emphasize is what do you need to be truly successful as an SMB? And listen to this is to your earlier question about about you know listening to your customers. I would I would be sort of very clear. Do they really need that in order to get off the ground? And that's the first question that I would ask. Cool. Vivek, thank you so much. You've been super generous with your time. We we really appreciate it. Anyone on the call, you know, you'd be lucky to have Mayfield and Vivek in particular as an investor. Again, thank you so much, Vivek, and thank you everyone for joining in your questions. We have a bunch of other cool sessions coming up. Uh, it's all listed on our site. Many of you should be getting our email, but we have Ed Sim from Bold Start coming up. We have Fred Simon from JFrog, Guy Poré, who ran a lot of the U.S. marketing for Wix when they launched in the U.S. And one more, Anne, remind me, what's the one I'm missing? Roy from Chorus. Roy, Roy uh, Ranani from Chorus, founder of Chorus, who who probably is like the, one of the world's leading experts on how to do sales over Zoom because it's exactly what their startup does. So anyway, thank you all and thank you for that. Thank you very much for having me, Gil and. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day.